David, James Murdoch has left the board of News Corp, in his words, quote, due to disagreements over certain editorial content. <laughs> what I want to know is, what particular piece of editorial content do you think was the final straw? <laughs> Oh man! Well, he's at some point he said he was going to see test the, the the feasibility of making change from the inside. I guess this is this is the admission that that wasn't going to happen. I don't know that there was one thing. I mean, is it any of the Tucker Carson highlights that we've discussed over the past six <laughs> months? Tucker Carlson. Is it, what did I say, Carson? Yeah. <laughs> Fox uh, News does not have a Johnny Carson-like figure at uh, 1130. I, I regret Tucker, to report. I don't know. I don't know. Some people put Tucker in that category. Um. I don't, I don't, I, I think what interests me more about this show, and people are asking what his next act is going to be, what he's going to do. My, what interests me most is that how we all feel like we have a much better understanding of what's going on at News Corp because we've watched Succession for two seasons. Like everybody thinks it's just a one-to-one and hell it might be like, I don't know, but like, maybe like, I don't know. I mean, I have some very basic questions about this that will, I'm sure will never be answered, but, um, but yeah, I I think at the end, I think at the end of the day, the one the one thing that shocked me the most that I think my my succession viewing is sort of explained is that that statement seems like a really my, a really low key rebuke to your family's enterprise if what you're trying to say is like f y'all I'm out of here. But I guess when you see the sort of when you watch succession and sort of get a feel for the sort of uh, you know, waspy cordiality that like, ev- or, or just kind of everything is sort of low key, but backhanded and loaded. Maybe that, may- maybe that statement is re- just a real stinger to everybody else in the Murdoch, uh, the Murdoch clan. Can you write F y'all I'm out of here on company letterhead? I mean, is that allowed? Uh, yeah. And I mean, listen, he's, he can, he can use his new company's letterhead if he wants to too, but I, I think he could pull that off. I, I, I think I would state it like this. Just caught up with water's world. F y'all, I'm out of here. <laughs> this is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker with a lot of great stuff for you today. First up, talk show host and comedian Ellen DeGeneres is facing criticism after two articles in BuzzFeed about the work environment at her show. We trace a comedian's path through the media, plus legendary New York Times sports writer Ira Burko joins us to talk about column writing, Red Smith, Isaiah Thomas, and the boxer Jake LaMotta. All that plus David guesses a strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's start with Joe Biden's search for a running mate, which will end next week. It was supposed to be this week. And first off, I propose that we avoid the term veep stakes. <laughs> which has a U.S. News and World Report 1988 kind of vibe to it. Biden is down to five front runners, we think. Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, that's kind of tier one. And then Representative Karen Bass of California, Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, and former National Security Advisor Susan Rice also in the hunt. Though a Biden campaign source told Politico on Sunday that 11 women are still being considered. Beyond the politics, David, there's a fascinating media story here. Have you spent the last week, like me, trying to figure out who's ahead by the way they're portrayed in the various articles? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of different algorithms, I think, at play right now. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. <laughs> Explain to me what you mean by that. Well, I think this is the simplest one. The likelihood that Biden will pick you to be his running mate 
is inversely related to the likelihood you will pick up a phone when a reporter calls to ask you about your chances. So the more the more available you are, the less likely you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I'll go with that. Which just follows common sense. Because if you're Kamala Harris, who, by the way, has not picking, been picking up the phone, you're like, I've got a really good shot at this. I don't want to have an interview with some weird gaffe or, or some problem that knocks me out. But if you're Karen Bass and you were a very long shot contender seemingly a couple of months ago and you want to gain ground, you do interviews, right? And maybe try to make up some of the distance between uh, between you and Harris. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally that, that 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 fits into whatever political game theory pretty nicely, I think. Yeah, Duckworth, Rice, and Bass have both been appearing on Sunday shows, giving comments to newspapers and magazines, basically lobbying for themselves in public. Harris and Elizabeth Warren almost saying nothing. Big story media-wise this week was clearly something is afoot with Team Biden, or I should say elements in Team Biden, to warn him away from Kamala Harris. Big Politico story last Thursday by Natasha Karecki, Christopher Catalago, I hope I'm saying that right, and Mark Caputo. Story was this, David, Chris Dodd, former senator from Connecticut who's helping Biden, asked Kamala Harris about her famous attack against Biden on busing in that debate way back when. Quoting here from Politico, Harris laughed and said, that's politics. She had no remorse. Dodd told a longtime Biden supporter and donor who relayed the exchange to Politico on the condition of anonymity. Dodd felt it was a gimmick, that it was cheap, the donor said. The person added that Dodd's concern about Harris were so deep that he'd helped elevate Karen Bass during the vetting process, urging Biden to pick her because, quote, she's a loyal number two, and that's what Biden really wants. And didn't that story set off a giant firestorm this week (laughs) (laughs) of not only media lobbying, but I felt like sort of reverse recriminations and anti-media lobbying? Mm Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, there's always two ways to look at this stuff, right? And especially in this uh, this situation. I mean, listen, should Kamala, should Kamala Harris be formally apologetic to look like she's groveling to get this uh, nomination? Uh, or is it much more appropriate for her to just be like, to, to take the that's politics route because her job as vice president, I mean, as, as candidate for vice president is going is to some extent going to be, you know, hatchet person, you know, I mean, she's that yes. she's going to need to be as remorseless uh, as, you know, any good state prosecutor should be. Yeah, I could just as easily see her argument being like, wait a second, don't you want me to do that to Mike Pence? Yeah. In the vice presidential debate? <laughs> don't you want me to don't you want me to have like a viral moment where I leave him tongue tied? Mm-hmm. and completely unprepared for an attack. And that is not to mention, as you just said, the unsavory sort of resonance of this whole thing of why isn't Kamala Harris appropriately apologetic to Joe Biden for running for president? That said, there is clearly something happening within the Biden camp about Kamala Harris right now. It may be nothing. It may be that some people think that Biden is going to pick her right, and this is the chance to somehow put you know the, these doubts out there and not only to Biden himself, but into public, but there is something happening at some level, big or small with Biden, Kamala Harris. Listen, this is nothing new. We see this every cycle and and actually more frequently than that. And maybe I'm just sort of, you know, I've been driven mad by the past four years, but it does seem to be 
if not unsavory, which is, I guess, par for the course, like just politically unnecessary to be using media to contact your candidate in the way that everyone that works for President <laughs> Trump has to do, right? I mean, that, doesn't that, I mean, because that's clearly what's going on. We can argue over the sides. We can argue over the, 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 the objectives, but that's clearly what's happening here. I mean, everything that we see is being planted for some good reason. Yeah. Do you see John Favreau, former Obama speechwriter? No podcast superstar he tweeted uh last week he said you know you don't have to answer the dm from the reporter when they <laughs> if you're if you're in the biden camp when they call to ask you about what you think about the vice presidential process to which i would say please don't not answer the the dm from the reporter right <laughs> you're right Politi politically you don't have to do that journalistically we would like to encourage everyone to just talk as much <laughs> as humanly possible we want information. Uh, we don't. We don't want anybody clamming up. I guess the question, though, is it like to what degree is it information? I mean, obviously, it's like content, but is it information? I mean, is it like are we learning anything from this? So that's the question, right? When when something like this gets out, are we learning something useful as reporters and or media consumers, or are we just getting something that's like so agenda driven and slanted? that it's actually, you know, sort of like clouding our minds about the vice presidential selection. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, enough when I, this stuff about Harris is being said, I have seen super legitimate reporters say by enough people that it's not nothing, right? It's it is worth noting that this is happening within the Biden team even if he ultimately picks Harris. Like that seems important this to know. these questions are being asked. Yeah, that there are okay. people within team Biden that that are skeptical about Harris. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. Right. And, and again, and the, at least in the way it's phrasing, it seems pretty cuckoo, but the, um, I guess that's useful to know, but then how much does that just overwhelm? Let's say what the consensus is. Maybe there's an 85% consensus that yes, Harris is the best choice. She is absolutely the best choice. I will add this too, David, the press, which has thought about a lot of these candidates for months, clearly flat footed on Karen Bass, a name we had not heard much at all and starts digging into her background. Well, guess what? There's a video of Karen Bass saying vague complimentary things about Scientology at a ceremony for the reopening of a building in 2010. Uh, Bass has come back and said, this is before much of the reporting on Scientology that has quote uh, exposed this group. The Atlantic's Edward Isaac Devere reported on Friday that Bass quote spent part of the 1970s working construction in Fidel Castro's Cuba with the Venceremos Brigade, a group that has organized trips, annual trips to Cuba for young leftist Americans for half a century. Bass has now come out and backtracked on statements she has made about Castro, saying, in effect, no, you do not got to hand it to Castro. Um, there's that. Then there's this whole thing that Biden is going to be 82 years old when he runs for reelection. If he runs for reelection, there's this whole sort of subplot, right? Does Joe Biden want to anoint his successor or does he want to pick somebody like Karen Bass who has come out and said, I don't want to run for president and therefore sort of leave it open to a whole host of candidates in 2024. So wait, the presumption being he's, he's regardless going to make the implicit statement that he's a one termer by, by the way that he chooses not his, his VP, but it will either be, this is the team for the next eight years, even though I won't be here the next for, for the following four or 
he's going to pick a vice president where they both project this is a one-term deal? There's, yeah, so pretty much. <laughs> I mean, there have been a lot of head nods from him, right, that I may just go one term. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, first of all, dude, you got to win in November. <laughs> first of all, let's not let's not get past the small matter of the November election. Mm-hmm. But then also, should you really be playing 4D chess to try to tell us who the nominee is going to be? Or should you just pick somebody who's going to help you win and deal with that immediate task? I think the latter. I mean, I think that it's especially as we kind of barrel towards the the general we're getting out of the sort of weeds of of primary season where we had a lot of a lot more time and uh, and and pre coronavirus a lot more time and mental investigative or journalistic energy to spend on those sorts of semi inane gotcha questions <laughs> or lines of lines of questioning and i and i think that at this point he just needs to have a pat answer you know ready for the debate but it's really i think bringing it up now only underlines the problem at half of it. I, I agree. I really do. A couple more notes to leave you with this. Uh, New York Times notes that Trump has been flailing around trying to find a nickname for Biden <laughs> or any charge that will really help him make up ground in the polls. And so part of the vice presidential selection, the none dare call it a veep stakes, is that you don't want to pick a running mate that then just offers a ripe target to Trump. <laughs> if you've... <laughs> If you've been, you know, bobbing and weaving as Trump's tried to hit you, you don't want to then offer somebody else up that's just tons and tons of nicknames and oppo research. So obviously Biden is thinking about that at some level. The other thing I think I would just say is that what we're seeing in the media, is it not, is a tiny snapshot of what is happening privately. People are lobbing Joe Biden like crazy, including I think the candidates themselves. So then we get a tiny snapshot of that process in the press. And if it seems super crazy and super intense, it's because it's super crazy and super intense behind the scenes, don't you think? Absolutely. Um, there, this stuff is either you know planted or it just you know trickles out because we're at maximum capacity of whatever backstage goings on there are, and often both things at the same time. But yeah, I mean, I, there are. I don't know. I just feel like. They're trying to thread a thousand needles right now. And even trying to answer a simple question from wherever we're sitting, it, it, nothing's that easy. We're, we, you know, we, we, in this podcast, have had two or more takes on every question that we've asked, right? Um, I'm here looking at the list. I mean, Politico has a tracker up, which doesn't do a lot to actually answer any questions about what, who the vice presidential pick is going to be. But I was just wondering, like, looking at the polls, if the polls are correct, if, Bi- if the Biden campaign believes the polls are correct, if, you know, as was reported today, the the quickly approaching window for early voting is going to spell potential doom for the Trump campaign. If all these things are true and you would think, well, the Biden campaign just needs to go with the safe pick, right? The safe pick. What does even what, what even does that mean? Right. Is exactly. it is this is the safe pick Kamala Harris because she's got the best, you know, Q rating or whatever. And or is the is the is the safe pick. I mean, I can't even, th- I mean, is, is it Karen Bass? Because it's, she's like so unknown that she can't possibly, well, maybe not after what you've been talking about, but, you know, is it is it a, you know, Keisha Lance Bottoms? Is it somebody who has just like, you know, a, a decent favorability rating, but mostly a never, no, no one's ever heard of her, right? I mean, is that the way to go? It's it's just impossible to to tell. Totally and totally. And and anybody, anybody could turn, as we've seen a num- numerous times, right? Anybody mm-hmm. could turn into a net negative or just kind of a non-entity like Tim Kaine was four years ago. 
I think you could argue non-entity. I mean, you could argue that in a, in a bunch of different directions, right? I mean, it's. It, I mean, I think there. I heard a lot of people, at least in the postmortem, say that that it was. You know, it, it made Hillary look like she was worried about taking someone on who had more charisma than her. So, you know, there's a lot of there's a million ways you can look at everything, right? And and regardless of the safety of the pick, and regardless of the polls, regardless of the genius potential genius of the pick, it's going to be dissected in every different direction, I guess. And that's probably what's making him take so long right now. They're just gaming it out. When you use the phrase "threading of needles," it's one of those interesting things to me because I think as reporters, that's what we're doing. Right. We're trying to like just figure out all these things. Has anything Joe Biden said or done in his campaign so far evoked the phrase threading of needles to you? (laughs) No. Right. Like it doesn't. It. it, He just seems like he's just kind of being Joe Biden and (laughs) or being Joe Biden in very limited amounts. Sure. But but, but, I mean, but he did, you know, he did start talking about the, the potential for one term. Before he even got in the race, right? A lot of these conversations happened before he whispered. got in the race. Yeah, it, it made right. its no, way but, in articles. And it, you know, it's borne out to be true or as true as anything can be right now. And so, we, you know, there, there had to be some truth to it at that point. He, you know, said he was going to have a female vice president, certainly before he needed to. There was no obligation for him to say that. So he's he's setting his own parameters to a certain extent. But you're right. I mean, the Joe, the Biden campaign is uh, not exactly meticulous, but they but they are setting, I mean, my guess is that this is a meticulous process and you know i don't think he's boxed himself in with either of those considerations or anything else but it's got to be part of the discussion you know who the winners are of this everybody writing a campaign book because we could (laughs) see a campaign dude that is like right now what biden plus nine basically Mm -hmm. just truck on ahead and wind up as Biden plus five or Biden yeah. plus four and not have a lot of, shall we say, like back and forth, you know, gripping chapters and narratives. But guess what? Chris Dodd just got a whole chapter in the campaign book. Like <laughs> Chris Dodd's mission to undermine Kamala Harris. That just became a whole chapter. Yep. That's that. That's absolutely true. I mean, this is this is the stuff those campaign books are made of. It's it, there's so much going on right now, though. I mean, it's so hard for us to take a breath to find a segment on the show to really concentrate on this. There's, the world is bonkers right now. And I wonder to what degree these such books, I mean, this is inside baseball to some to the nth degree, but I wonder to what degree those these campaign books are going to be traditional campaign books this season. That's another press box segment that we will do sometime. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious. That all of media Twitter made it exactly at the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. David, let's start with some breaking wrestling news. The Rock, a.k.a. Dwayne Johnson, is part of a group that has bought the spring football league, the XFL. Oh, my gosh. Big news for David's other podcast, but a lot of good jokes for this one. Is this an episode <laughs> of Ballers? Uh, finally, the rock has come back to pro football and, uh, this is my favorite. It doesn't matter that the XFL has collapsed <laughs> twice. Is it, there's gotta be a joke in the old, like, like he hate me XFL thing mm. where like, it, it literally doesn't matter what your name is. You could just put whatever you want on the back of your jersey. Oh, that's really good. Check uh, um, at David Shoemaker for that gag. Later and listen, I, 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 I don't know if I am embarrassed or proud to admit that I've never actually watched Ballers, but I am informed that this is actually a, a plot in Ballers. I think that, <laughs> I think that he I think that the Rock's character 
tried to go against the NFL at some point. I, I could I could be totally wrong about that. Thanks to our friends Hugh Hopkins, Alan Cordor, WWE Trivia TO, and Jess Anderson for sending that in. In other news, David, Tropical Storm Isaiah is bearing down on the Carolinas where it may become a hurricane. It was an overworked Twitter joke to sigh and write, oh, a hurricane moving up toward the U.S. So on brand for 2020. Thanks to Fox's Shane Bacon. There's this whole category of overworked Twitter jokes now. They're just a bad thing is happening to us. How typical that is uh, that we, we, we need to give that a name. And finally, David, the Lincoln Project a.k.a. those Republicans who make clever ads against Trump, posted a picture of the Trump children on Twitter, Ivanka, Eric, and Don Jr., and they said, name this band. (laughs) A lot of funny responses, as you might imagine, but my favorite was from our old friend and colleague, Trayvon Free. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Lady (laughs) (laughs) anti-BLM. Oh, give that man the crown. That's fantastic. If you kept the Lady A jokes alive for one more week, God bless you and congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Before we do the notebook dump, David, let us pause for a brief commercial break. David, if you've been dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles, finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs, but getting started can be overwhelming. Thankfully, there's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription skincare that really performs. Just grab your phone or your computer, complete a free online consultation, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours, if appropriate. A doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin types and priorities. You'll receive your custom skincare treatment with a free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. Go to GetRoman.com Pressbox to try out a three-month supply of Nightly Defense for just five bucks. It's free to chat with a doctor and your first order is just five dollars. That's GetRoman.com slash PressBox. Eligibility requirements and additional terms apply. All right, David, in the notebook dump, you sent me a piece in the Washington Post by Emily Yar about Ellen DeGeneres. DeGeneres has been heavily criticized after two BuzzFeed stories described what they called the show's toxic work environment. But this is also a media story. Because DeGeneres, as Emily Yar points out in this very good story, has had two years of what in the old days we'd call bad press. Mm-hmm. But today is more like stuff that you and I kind of saw or half saw on Twitter and seeped into our minds. And I don't know about you, but I had this just feeling, even before the BuzzFeed stories came out, of just like, man, I'm really disappointed in Ellen DeGeneres. And I couldn't have even told you why. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it was just sort of osmosis. Yes. Somebody I liked or thought I liked, and now I don't. Um, the Ellen show I learned in this article has been on the air 17 years, which yeah. is pretty amazing. Her sign-off is be kind to each other, which is reminiscent of the Jerry Springer sign-off. <laughs> uh, the first stage of this, David, was people calling out Ellen on television. This is from last November. Ellen had actor Dakota Johnson on the show. Listen to a little bit of this awkward exchange. It's good to see you. Happy belated birthday. When was your birthday? It was October 4th. October 4th. 
You turned 30. I did. And um, how was the party? I wasn't invited. Actually, no, that's not the truth, Ellen. You were invited. Last year, no, last time I was on the show, last year, you gave me a bunch of about not inviting you, but I didn't even know you wanted to be invited. Well, who did not want to be invited to a party? Well, I didn't even know you liked me. <laughs> of course I like you. You knew I liked you. You've been on the show many times, and, and don't I show like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I did invite you, and you didn't come. So. This time you invited me? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. How do you know? I don't think so. Ask everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Ask Jonathan, your producer. Who okay. said you were? I yeah, was invited? Right Why didn't I go? I don't know. Was it, was it? it oh, yeah, I had that thing. Um, <laughs> A little bit of 1980s David Letterman edge to that interview, is there not? Yes, totally. That was, I mean, okay, she's been doing this for 17 years. I'm sure a lot of this is just off the cuff at this point or, you know, just automated. And it all always works out, right? But this, it's, it's, this is just so strange. Like if this happened on, this feels like season or like season one of Jimmy Kimmel where they didn't know what they were doing and like Snoop Dogg was there, you know, like I don't, and it, it had this like great, incredible energy to it, but that's not what Ellen is, right? It's not this like antic, anything could go, anything could happen and it probably will energy. And she's not trying, presumably she's not, this is the crazy thing. Presumably she's not trying to make Dakota Johnson to ruin this interview, right? So no. the best case scenario is almost that she was, I guess that she could be joking about it and Dakota, but she was not prepared for the answer. It just seems like she's kind of trying to bully Dakota Johnson under the guy uh, behind the shield of like that Dakota Johnson can't come back at her on the, on, on her own stage. It's very strange. And, and then it made it to air, which is even weirder. Yeah. And I was impressed. They left it in to, mm -hmm. to the credit of the Ellen show. Yeah. And, and just think what, what Dakota Johnson is saying there in so many words, like you got mad last time I was here because I didn't invite you to my birthday party. And then I did. And it turns out what you were saying before it was, was a total bit because you didn't even come. So you weren't mm -hmm. actually mad and you don't actually really seemingly want to be my friend. I mean, that was, <laughs> that was the, that was the undertone. Um, the other thing about Ellen that Emily R points out has happened is people have started to talk about her as, wait, you're more of an ambassador to famous people then you are someone who stands up for what they believe in. January mm -hmm. 2019, she had Kevin Hart on the show after Hart had lost his Oscars hosting gig uh, for homophobic tweets. Ellen, as you are right, seemingly forgave him, called his critics haters, was a little too easy on him for some people's tastes. October 2019, you'll remember this, David, uh, DeGeneres was shown at a Dallas Cowboys game sitting next to George W. Bush. Oh, having yeah. a good time with George W. Bush. She addressed that on the show a few days later. But a lot of people were mad, and they did what people do when they're mad. They tweet. And, uh, but here's one tweet that I loved. This uh, person says, Ellen and George Bush together makes me have faith in America again. And, um, exactly. Here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think that we've forgotten that that's okay that we're all different. Yeah, that's all fine. I mean, I think at the time we all knew this was a little bit overblown, although it, it was another sort of drop in the bucket, right? And, and I guess it's more shocking for her to say, oh, you know what? I'm friend. 
Is it more shocking that she's friends with George W. Bush? Not that I was laughing with him in a skybox, but I'm friends with him. Yeah, that was that was just surprising to me. And and to not address the LGBTQ rights issues inherent in this at all was sort of seems sort of odd. But I think to me, it's just listen. She's a talk show host. This was the appropriate place for her to address it. But and we all and celebrities and and all human beings, you know, address these things in the way that is probably that that you know gives them the the best audience for their apologies. But there is something just inherently funny, I guess, about doing it literally in front of an audience who is literally whooping for you as you're as you're giving your apology to the world. You know, I mean, it's 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 a uh, well, I mean, it's literally staged, I guess. Well, we should also note that this criticism of DeGeneres is basically the opposite of the first one. The first mm-hmm. one was she's not very nice. The second criticism was she's too nice to George W. Bush. <laughs> right? That's actually the opposite thing, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Um, a couple more. There was a couple more tweets about, you know, about her and all this kind of stuff. Then the reporting comes in. Uh, a pair of BuzzFeed articles by Christy Lee Yandoli. She wrote in one of them that the office, uh, that is the office of the Ellen show is a place where sexual harassment and misconduct by top executive producers runs rampant. Uh, Ellen released a statement about that. Actors like Brad Garrett and Leah Thompson, David tweeting out criticism this week of DeGeneres, uh, not Mm -hmm. something I expected to read. And then, of course, inevitable endpoint is a British tabloid saying that Ellen's show, Ellen on her show, could be replaced by James Corden at any moment, which feels like just kind of the obligatory like tabloid story, uh, whether that actually happens or not. I think one thing, I mean, I think we, on the one hand, we can put into one category the stuff in BuzzFeed that was happening behind the scenes on the show. Because that's gross and no one in any workplace should have to endure that kind of treatment of course, harassment. There is this other thing that's happening here, too, that I think is a little bit separate, which is that essentially there are expectations of how somebody who is on a daytime talk show should be, should act. Is there not that are different from somebody in another format? Like David Letterman was an asshole for years and years and years and applauded for being an asshole. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's some expectation that if you're doing the daytime talk show thing, you're not allowed. You're just not allowed by the audience to be like that. Is there something there? Do you think? Well, yeah. On-screen person personas are obviously not the same as off-screen personas, but I mean, I, I mean, think of all the, you know, TV shows, cartoons, movies, and stuff we've seen over the years of the talk show host or the, whatever, where the the cameras turn off and they go from smiling to like smoking a cigarette and slapping their assistant or whatever. I mean that that in itself is a sort of trope that I think we're interested in, uh, and and certainly it's a it's a uh, I don't know if it's a betrayal, but but the dichotomy is going to be interesting. I mean I remember for me I don't know if this was certainly not the first time it popped up in my radar, but journalistically when the stories came out at the very beginning of. The, the coronavirus quarantine where she was filming the show. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get some of this wrong, but she was filming the show, I guess, from her home, but was like not exactly union busting, but using some like different camera people or producers or whatever than, than her normal crew who she can, you know, uh, publicly considered her family and sort of leaving body, everybody else in the lurch. And that's when I, I remember reading that little story and there wasn't a ton there, but thinking like, oh, this is when the, the like the rest of the journalists start moving, right? They they spring into action. They're like there's something going on here. There's a, there's mm-hmm. a story, there's a story that can be told and especially if you look at like the BuzzFeed pieces which are fantastic. 
you know, there's a lot of outlets like that that are, that would be willing to publish that piece if it were half of what it was, right? I mean, there's like there were everybody's looking for at that point. Once you start looking for this stuff, if you can find anything, uh, especially on a show like Ellen's that has such cultural significance, um, it you know it's a story worth telling. All right, David. You know Ira Burkow's work from the New York Times and other places. He joined the press box, and we got into everything from Red Smith to Isaiah Thomas which means that we pretty much covered the waterfront. Here's Ira. Ira Burkow is a fabulous sports writer and columnist whose career spanned 26 years at the New York Times and many more beyond. In his new book, How Life Imitates Sports, you can read about such athletes as Muhammad Ali, LeBron James, Jackie Robinson, and O.J. Simpson. But Ira, another name caught my eye. Uh, you've got to be one of the only sports writers whose book comes with a blurb from novelist Saul Bellow, who said, I follow Ira Burkow and the Times with unfailing interest. How did, how did that come about? Well, you know, I'm originally from Chicago, and, uh, and so was Bellow. Well, actually born in Montreal, but he moved to Chicago when he was five, and he grew up in Chicago. And, and Chicago was the basis for so much of his writing. And uh, I was doing a book about a street in Chicago where I worked as a boy called Maxwell Street. And he was fond of this street. It was like an old world marketplace in Chicago. And uh, I called him. Uh, I, I know that he had a, it was, a picture was taken with Bellow on Maxwell Street. And so uh, I contacted him. This is 1975, 76. And I contacted him for uh, what thoughts he had about the street. But, and so that evolved into a, a relationship, uh, which uh, we would trade letters. And uh, I, I never uh, – and then he, he wrote me, and, and, uh, and I took that quote from a letter that, that he sent to me. Uh, and um, he also said he loved my book, Maxwell Street. So uh, I was delighted with that. And I had never met him. And we talked on the phone a few times, and uh, we exchanged uh, correspondence. And then I decided uh, I, I was going to Boston for something, and he was now in, living in Boston, and he, was, he had been teaching uh, at Boston University. So I called his home or his office, and uh, someone who was working with him said that uh, he is uh, near death and, uh, and, and can't talk, and uh, uh, that was the closest I got to meeting him, but... Um, but we had a, a, a we actually had a, a warm relationship, and and I was, and I was delighted to learn that that he read my stuff. <laughs> Absolutely, I like yeah. to ask this: You start in sports writing with the Minneapolis Tribune in 1965. At that right. point, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, uh, I, actually, growing up in Chicago, and uh, well, first I was a, a baseball and basketball player in high school. I was captain of my high school basketball team in the Chicago Public League, Sullivan High School. Uh, but I soon realized that I wasn't going to have a future in in uh, in sports, and uh, in in in, uh, in playing anyway. Uh, and then I wanted uh, I had no direction. I wanted to be a uh, I thought I'd be a lawyer. I read about Clarence Darrow, who was also Chicago. And, uh, and it seemed uh, intriguing and, uh, and, uh, uh it, it dramatic really, uh, to, you know, to be a, a lawyer and, and, and the kind of lawyer that Clarence Darrow was. So I went the way to, uh, but then I, I eventually went to college at, um, uh, Miami of Ohio and, uh, by a quirk of circumstances, uh, I got on the, the school paper as a junior 
And uh, I started writing, and then I was given a column, and I thought, oh, my God, this is terrific. This is fun. And so um, I, started, I started writing this, and then I decided to write – I read Red Smith in the Chicago Sun-Times first. Uh, I read him because uh, uh, I thought he was a Chicago writer at first, but I didn't realize he was syndicated. And I just started reading him in the sports pages, and uh, oh, my God, he was fabulous. Then I realized – that he was a, uh, a syndicated writer out of New York. And so um, I, I uh, sent away I, two of my columns. I pasted, uh, I, I put it uh, in an envelope and wrote to Red Smith, the care of the uh, New York Herald Tribune, which was his, his flagship paper. And uh, I asked him to critique my stuff. I mean, out of the blue, you know, <laughs> I mean, who, who am I, you know, I mean, sure. but uh, I, anyway, uh, I did it. And um and I, I I waited about easily a month, month and a half, and then I got a response, and it was, uh, it was dear Ira Burgo. When I when I was a cub reporter in Milwaukee and writing uh, a lead, the uh, the managing editor would uh, or the city editor would come by and look over my shoulder, and if he liked what he saw, he'd nod and walk away, and if he didn't, he'd say, "Try again." My advice to you is try again. <laughs> 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 that's good and it's honest and uh yeah and it was it was honest but it was sweet and uh and then he he made um he said there are a couple of things that i would uh, pinpoint uh he said but uh but keep doing it your way and 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 god bless uh uh red smith oh he did say um uh, i was going to write in marginal criticisms but they would not have made you happy <laughs> and so um uh, uh, so am I depressed that the great Red Smith didn't like my stuff, or or was I excited that uh, that that he took the time, you know, to respond to me? So I decided that uh, he, uh, the, the latter, and so I I got both of my uh, those columns that I had sent him, I pasted them up on on paper, folded them into an envelope, and with a note, dear Mister Smith, please make me unhappy. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and we developed a correspondence and a friendship. And, um, uh, and when I, um, when I came to New York, we, I saw each other, uh, we saw each other on occasion, uh, but it was still distant. I mean, he was still, you know, but he was a mentor to me. And, um, and then we overlapped at the times for, a, a, oh, about nine months. And, uh, he was getting sick and they were asking me to substitute for him sometimes, which was incredible. And uh, so I did. And then I'm writing a column. Uh, it was January 15th, 1982. I'm home writing a column, and the sports editor called and, and said, uh, Ira, we've got uh, some bad news that um, Red died, and, and we want you to write his obituary. He said, we have an obituary on file, uh, but we, we don't like it, and, um, and we'd like you to write it. Mm. <laughs> and so uh, this was like, Two or three o'clock in the afternoon. Ooh, no and, pressure. And, yeah, no pressure. You know, and the deadline six thirty, and uh, uh, maybe maybe it was, maybe a little earlier, maybe even one o'clock. I, I don't remember because uh, I said, "Well, I, I I can write it from home. I have all the material. I mean, uh, I, I've saved stuff up with in Red uh, Red Smith's columns and also Red Smith's uh, correspondence with me." And they said, "No, we want you to come in the office uh, because uh, the whole country is uh, in the." sending in uh, 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 opinions about him and uh, and uh, from uh, senators and uh, on and on. So they said, why don't you to come to the office? So I, I jumped in a cab and I came to the office and uh, and I just started writing. And 
and uh, this was the, I think it was January 15th. And then uh, uh, I wrote, it was kind of a long piece. And I also included, I said, he was, uh, he was gracious to uh, a college students and he wrote to one of them. Uh, and I quoted from, from a, a letter that he had written to me and uh, with, without mentioning my name. And uh, then, uh, and the next morning um, uh, I, I was getting the paper delivered at my doorstep uh, in my apartment. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, I got up, uh, early, uh, to see, uh, you know, how they ran my, uh, the, the obituary uh, that I wrote. And, uh, so I, I went to the, uh, opened it up and quickly went to the sports section and there was nothing in the sports section. And then there was a, an obituary page inside. I went there and there was nothing there. And I was, I said, my God, what they do. And then I, I fold the paper back up. And on the front page of the New York Times, January 16, 1962, below the fold uh, was my uh, obituary on Red Smith, and it ran ran inside. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You got to the Times in 81, and the Times looks at sports differently than other newspapers, I think it's fair to say. How would you describe the role of the sports section within the New York Times? Well, at the time, one of the reasons they said they hired me and, and hired Red Smith earlier uh, was um, they wanted to uh, liven up the sports section that they thought it was dull, and so they're trying to hire writers, uh, you know, uh, that could uh, uh, liven things up, and uh, and and I was one of those, and so, uh, um, but it, you know, it was it was the the gray lady, you know, the good good gray lady. I'll, I'll give you an example, uh, and it was ninety. We can check on this ninety ninety two, I think, when. Um, uh, Reggie Jackson was uh, traded or, or, or left to be a free agent from the Yankees, and uh, they, uh, Steinbrenner felt he was over the hill. So uh, he w- and then he was signed by the Los Angeles or the California Angels, and uh, first time back to New York, with Reggie, and Reggie's having not a, not a good season so far. It was early in the season, maybe April, May, and uh, he comes up to bat and uh, he hits his at Yankee Stadium. He hits his first home run. Mm-hmm. And uh, and as he starts to round the bases, a chant starts in left field, in right field, uh, where he hit the ball, and it went all around the park. And and Steinbrenner is standing right outside of his uh, office, uh, uh, facing the, the the field, and and he's there. And the chant was Steinbrenner sucks, Steinbrenner sucks. <laughs> okay, and it went all around, and it was chilling. And so I, I, and I was writing the column that day. And so I wrote, I wrote it. And I wrote, you know, Steinbrenner sucks. It was changed to uh, the the crowd was chanting a pejorative. <laughs> so demure. <laughs> but you know, I think, I think now, I think now they would have run Steinbrenner sucks because uh, just just uh, was it uh, two weeks ago or so when this uh, congressman uh, Yoho confronted uh, Ocasio of Alexandria, the Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez, sure. and and she said, he called me a fucking bitch. And that was in the New York Times. So, you know, I mean, I think things things are changing to some degree. Uh, a year ago, uh, in, in a subhead, and then in the story, uh, they called uh, Trump, uh, they called him for lying, and they used the word liar. That's right. So it is, yeah. it has loosened up a little bit. Do you find when you're writing for the Times that players read the paper or are they reading the Post and the Daily News? Um, okay, so uh, I was friendly with um, uh, Dave Rigetti, uh, a pitcher for the Yankees, uh, 
And I got to be friendly with them because when the Yankees sent them down to the minor leagues, I went down to do a story on them in the minor leagues. And if you are uh, do something with somebody when they're in the minor leagues, uh, somehow or other, it was like it's like you're in the foxhole in the army, and uh, and so you're you're sort of friends. You have a connection for life. So anyway, went now he's back with the Yankees, and so I go over to him uh, at his locker, and I had a question for him, and he said, Ira, he said, if I tell you this, then uh, then the guys and the the rest of the guys are, are going to read it and they're going to get pissed off. So I I really can't tell you. And so I looked at it. The best thing to do in a, in a situation like that is to say nothing. So I looked at him. He looked at me. I looked at him. He looked at me. And he said, you know, these guys don't read the New York Times, I'll tell you. <laughs> 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 so, uh, but but uh, the thing is that that they will if it's if if you said something negative in some way maybe or maybe even positive but mostly negative uh somehow even if they don't read the paper uh they learn about it they find mm. out about it right it yeah. gets quoted somewhere yeah. or something yeah i mean friends of theirs friends of theirs will tell them oh god did you see what that blank blank burko wrote about you today you know <laughs> Uh, but, but, but Steinbrenner, Steinbrenner, but Steinbrenner was great because, uh, I mean, he was such easy pickings for a columnist, you know, to, uh, knock. And one day, one day there's a, an, some event, indoor event, uh, some gala or something. And, uh, and I was there and I saw George. And so I walked over to him and I said, uh, George, I have a question for you. He said, I don't remember. Am I talking to you or am I not talking to you? <laughs> oh, I, love I, said, I said, George, I can't believe it. Don't you remember? You're talking to me. He said, oh, okay. Okay. That <laughs> he is said, great. He told me. You get to the Times. A few months later, you start writing the Sports of the Times column. What did yeah. you want to do differently with your column that others maybe weren't doing or hadn't done before? Uh, nothing. I, 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 I wanted to just write to the best of my ability to write on the level, not aping, but on the level of Red Smith. I mean, to that kind of, uh, of, 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 of um, shall I say, literary? I mean, but um, just, just to write well, just to write well, and to capture the moments, the moods, and also then also to uh, to be honest and to be forthright. Um, and I think that we, uh, uh, you and I, actually had at some t- previous time had talked about um, something that I had done with. Uh, Tanya Harding, and and I think this is an example um, uh, of of trying to be forthright. And you remember when Tanya Harding uh, was there was a question about whether she should go to the Olympics or not, and uh, because it was she involved with uh, the the kneeing of her number one opponent Nancy Kerrigan, mm-hmm. and the whole country knew in quotes that. Uh, Tanya Harding was involved, and I had some experience it being in Chicago of a uh, a murder suspect, uh, and and in headlines in the Chicago papers that um, that th- this guy did did the murder, and the sheriff got him, and it was a whole thing, and and they were going to you know send him uh, to the electric chair eventually. Well, it turned out that he didn't do it at all. There was a lot of evidence that seemed like he did do it, uh, including a confession. But he didn't do it. And I was 17 years old reading this story. And and Tanya Harding now is saying that she had no involvement with, with this uh, um, uh, hitting of her opponent. Uh, and uh, and so uh, uh, that was an influence on me. And, 
And I was one of the few sports writers in the country that said there's not enough evidence to prove that that she knew beforehand or that she was involved in this. So, um, uh, and it turns out that she did go to the Olympics, and it turned out that she was convicted eventually of of knowing afterward uh, that she never had prior knowledge that she uh, of. Uh, of the incident of her, it was her ex-husband who was involved in it, and uh, and and that was that was one example of trying to be forthright. Uh, another example uh, that you can't take what everybody is saying at one point. Uh, and um, when Michael Jordan's father was murdered, uh, he was he, he pulled off the side of a road to to fall asleep, and apparently uh, two guys came and and murdered him. But at the point, we didn't know what what had happened, and. Jordan had been involved in some um, gambling uh, incidents at that time. And um, so I was writing a column that day, and the the, the deputy sports editor actually said, "We you got to write that Jordan's, uh, uh, that the murders uh, and the and the gambling uh, were, were connected in some way. Well, we didn't know this. We didn't know this at all. Mm-hmm. And I wrote, and I wrote that, that the only thing we do know, because at this point, all we know is that the, the father was murdered in his car. Okay. And so I said, the only thing that we do know is that Michael Jordan and his father had a very deep affection for each other, and that and what and what this means to uh, to Michael. Uh, and so and so I wrote that rather than writing, you know, there has to be a connection uh, uh, to gambling. Well, uh, so you asked me a, a, a very good question earlier on, and the thing is, you know, to write to write honestly and and to not take leaps if you uh um unless you're you're certain about what you're writing about here's another one uh that really that i remembered and and went back and looked up before we talked 1987 the lakers are about to play the celtics in the finals and isaiah thomas piston star another fellow chicagoan made a comment had made a comment about larry bird and Isaiah said, yeah. I think Larry's a very, very good basketball player, an exceptional talent, but I'd have to agree with Dennis Rodman. If Bird was black, he'd be just another good guy. Of course, yeah. Isaiah went in for a lot of criticism. You call him up for a Sports of the Times column. Can you tell us what you were thinking with that? Yeah, um, I, I called him, uh, you know, I mean, people were were, were knocking uh, uh, Isaiah, and I had I, I had a relationship with Isaiah uh, early on because uh, I interviewed him when, when he was in college. And I called him and, um, and he said to me, he said, Ira, he said, I, 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 I misspoke in a way, uh, that, uh, you know, I, we lost the game and, uh, we lost it in the last second and, and Isaiah had thrown a bad pass. Uh, um, it was intercepted by, by bird. Uh, and he threw to, um, to one of his, uh, who was it? Dennis, um, uh, the, the other guy, Johnson, Dennis Johnson, right? uh, yeah, the Johnson and made, made the basket that, that won the game for this, for the Celtics. And, uh, so, uh, Isaiah was, was sort of down in, in the, in the locker room when that happened. And, and, uh, Dennis Rodman, who I think was a rookie at the time, but just mouthed off. And, uh, and Isaiah said that, that, you know, people, people think of, of, of black athletes, uh, as just you know, it, dribbling out of their mother's womb, you know that they're that uh, uh, they have no uh, uh, intelligence really. They just have a great physical talent. And he said, I guess all of that came to a fore in in my head. And I I just uh, I I said that. And uh, look, Larry Bird's a great player. And um, uh, and you know, uh, and so I and and I wrote that column. And, uh, I was happy to say that uh, I was nominated uh, for a Pulitzer Prize, and um, 
and I, I got finalists for the commentary, and uh, and that column was the lead column for the the ten that the the Times submitted. Um, but um, so now um, the Celtics are in the the playoffs instead of the Pistons, and uh, I'm in Los Angeles, and uh, I'm going to I'm have my laptop, and I'm going to get the the press bus in the hotel. And in the corridor in the hotel, I hear Ira, and I turn around, and it's Isaiah Thomas. Mm. He said, hey, uh, I said, oh, Isaiah, what, uh, what's going on? And he said, well, I was, I was asked to be at, on ha- halftime. Brent Musburger was interviewing me uh, halftime of this playoff game, and I'll talk about um, the incident. And I said, and he said, said to me, uh, can, we, can we talk? So I said, okay, come back in my room. So he went back in my room. And uh, I and the, the the essence of this was that um, he said, "What what should I say?" And I said, "Isaiah, tell the truth. It's only the truth that people are going to believe." Uh, and so he went on, and and uh, I I'm not I didn't hear it, so I, I'm not sure what he said, but he may have equivocated it to a degree. But I don't know if he told the, the entire truth. But I also remember one other thing, <laughs> and that was uh, in the in the room. I crossed my leg, and uh, and he said, "You're wearing socks." I said, uh, yeah, and and he pulled up his pants and he, uh, uh, showed me his ankle. And he, he was not wearing socks. It was, you know, it was the, the fashion at the time for cool guys not to wear socks. Mm-hmm. And so before leaving, you said, "Why are you wearing socks?" <laughs> like, I'm a sports writer. I'm not fashionable. <laughs> Why are you wearing socks? That's great. That is great. 1985, Ira, Las Vegas. You were there for the Marvin Hagler Thomas Hearns boxing match, which was a huge fight at the time. You yeah. also wound up covering the sixth wedding of Jake LaMotta, a column that is right. collected here. Jake LaMotta, of course, is the guy Robert De Niro played in Raging Bull. How did you wind up there? And I've always wondered when you were when you were at this wedding, are you thinking, oh my God, this is going to be an incredible column? <laughs> right. Yeah, no. What happened was I was there for the fight and I had known uh, LaMotta. Uh, not, not a lot, not great, but no enough. And so and he knew I was a reporter and, uh, I said, so what's up, Jake, when I saw him, he said, I'm getting married th- uh, this evening. I said, you're getting no kidding. You've been married a few times. He says, yeah, I, I think it was the sixth or seventh wedding. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, he said, come on up. I said, so it's a, he told me where the hotel was nearby. The, it was, I was saying the Caesar's palace and he was at a nearby hotel. So I thought, what the hell, you know, uh, I was always told when I started in the newspaper business, be there because mm-hmm. you never know what's going to happen. You know, be there wherever it was, uh, go to the ball game, go to the, you know, the, uh, so I, uh, I just dropped in. I was going to just look around and then I was going to go to dinner. It was like six o'clock, six thirty, and turned out that all these old fighters were there. I mean, uh, Joey Maxim and, uh, Tony Zale and, uh, uh, oh God! Uh, Billy Kahn was there. Sugar Ray Billy Kahn. Uh, oh, uh, and uh, uh, Carmen Basilio. Carmen Basilio. And so all of them were there. And it was, and I didn't have a notebook because I, I was just going to go, so drop in, have dinner, and and I and then I walked around, and it was the funniest, funniest thing. Uh, and uh, they were just great. Uh, and but just before um, uh, the uh, the vows. Jake was with his wife, uh, or the wife to be, uh, and the the preacher was there, and uh, the phone rang somewhere in this this room. The phone rang, and Jake steps forward, and says, "What round is it?" <laughs> That's just amazing. 
<laughs> yeah, it was it was amazing. And uh, and I said to Jake, I said, uh, I said, Jake, your your wife is better looking than you are. And he said, she better be. <laughs> so, and and Carmen, Carmen Basilio, uh, who was the middleweight champion, he lived in Conestoga, New York. I asked him if he uh, if he ever went to college. And he said, um, uh, I went to the, um, the school of HN. He went to the school of HN. Well, what's that? He said, hard knocks. <laughs> <laughs> Just anyway, it went, it went on and on <laughs> from there. <laughs> and so I wrote, I, I ran. So what happened was, this was such good stuff. I ran back to the hotel. And I just started writing the story, you know, or, or writing in notes, and then and then I wrote my story, and uh, uh, and it was made front page of the sports section, of course, and it, it said, and the title was the the Lamada nuptials, and if if you don't mind my my saying so, that when David Alberstam put together um, best American sports writing of the century, he included that column, <laughs> which was funny, yeah. The, uh, we had Diane K. Shaw on the podcast last week, Ira, and she told us that yeah. uh, even decades after she stopped writing a newspaper sports column there, or morning she wakes up and wishes she had one because she's got a column in her head. You ever feel that way? Uh, you know, I on occasion, but and just recently, within the, let's see, uh, in April and then in the July first, I had columns in the paper. I had a, um, I read where Al Kaline died. And mm-hmm. uh, last uh, last April, and um, and I remembered I did a column on uh, 1969 on uh, K-Line in his 17th season in the major leagues. He he played for like over 20, and but this was his 17th season, and uh, and he said, you know, I'm sitting in the dugout with him. And he said, I just wonder sometimes if I've wasted my time, if I shouldn't have been a doctor or helping helping people in some way other than being a, a ball player. And I recalled that, and I, I called the sports editor, and I said, you know, I, I have a, an insight uh, from uh, about K-Line. And he, uh, and he said, you know, okay, good, write it. You know, so I wrote it, and, and they ran it. Uh, they didn't run it as a sports at times column. They ran it as on, on, uh, on baseball column, mm-hmm. a slug on baseball. And then um, there was the, the, the uprising, of course, as you know, in, uh, in, in Minneapolis, it went, uh, and, and the murder of that uh, George Floyd. And uh, and I, I remembered um, I did a book with, with Rod Carew once called Carew. I wrote it with him. And uh, but I remember him telling me about um, uh, police harassment uh, with him uh, when he was with the, with the Minnesota Twins. And this is going back into the 70s. And so, uh, again, I uh, I called called Carew and uh, we talked. And uh, and I recall that um, he, when he was living in a, in a Minneapolis suburb. And uh, he was uh, he would sometimes jog through the streets, but it was a mostly white suburb. And he would regularly get stopped by cops thinking that a black man is running and probably st- running away, having stolen something. And so he, he stopped running through the streets. Uh, he would also be stopped by cops uh, driving. Uh, uh, and he, here was a baseball hero. And, and so anyway, I wrote I wrote that as well. So that that appeared uh, July 1st in the New York Times. And they ran the, it was they ran just essentially the entire page. With, with pictures, I remember <laughs> and, it. And, and the reason is that uh, I guess one of the reasons is I'm the sports editor liked the story, but 
there was nothing else going on in sports. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. There you go. Right. I mean, if there was a baseball and basketball season going on, it, it would have been relegated to page nine of the sports section. <laughs> Ira Burkow's new book is How Life Imitates Sports. A sports writer recounts, relives, and reckons with 50 years on the sports beat. It's got a ton of amazing stories. And then Ira's updated notes on several of them. Ira, thanks so much for doing this. Okay, Brian. Thanks for thinking of me. I appreciate it. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker Guesses, the strained pun headline. Yay. Thursday's headline about Matthew McConaughey writing his memoirs was All Right, All Right, All Right. I thought you were making me guess the title of the book, which, I mean, I got the answer right. That would have That is not, in fact, the title of the book. Uh, it is not. It was much more boring than that. What was it, Green Lights? Yeah, Green Lights, which is a nice name, but not exactly one that makes you think of Matthew McConaughey. I, I wish... That's a perfect celebrity memoir title, Green Lights. It was just <laughs> got a vaguely inspirational like. Yeah, okay. yeah. All right, all right, all right is, uh, I mean, who's not going to buy that? Come on. Or Moyal over at The Athletic uh, noted to me that the, that pun was actually used in a tweet by The Athletic when Matthew McConaughey did a chat for them. So I just <laughs> congrats to everyone who has used that exquisite pun. Today's wow. headline, David, is from Cash and Legal. It's from Reuters, kind of a surprising source. The story is about a nightclub in Western France. A 19-year-old student goes there last month. There's a lot of dancing at the nightclub, and you can probably guess what happens next. 72 cases of COVID-19 are traced back to the student and his friends. The wire service reports. The key word here is disco. Disco. You're going to want to start there. What was the Reuters strained pun headline? God, I was all ready for dirty dancing. Uh, Disco Mm, would not have been bad. Disco, uh, dis flying, uh, dis. I don't. It's not disco. Not disco inferno. No. Um. Dang, I don't know. You're gonna have to give me another hint. I uh, I was on a roll. This is this would be the name of a band. A band, uh, believe oh, turned. Oh, band Panic t- at the Disco. Oh, uh, so keep going there. Oh, oh, uh, p- uh, p- um. Pandemic at the Disco. Pandemic at the Disco. That's great. Mr. Shoemaker, well done. Fantastic stuff. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. We're back Thursday with listener mail. Send that in now. Want to say a quick farewell, David, while we're here for Jim Cunningham. Uh. First producer of this podcast. He's now moving on to the uh, Cousin Sal expanded universe. Mm Mm-hmm. We're going to miss Jim Cunningham here at The Ringer, aren't we? He produces both of my podcasts, uh, and yes, or has produced, I guess, but uh, I'm going to miss him terribly. Um, I don't even know what to say. I wasn't, I I totally, I I forgot that this was going to be tacked on at the end of the show, and I'm sort of, uh, kind of, I caught my breath. Um, Jim, you know, for all of you who've been listening, Jim is the reason why there's uh, that bar style piano music uh, lounge piano music at the beginning of the show he was the sole per- i mean the sole reason there were ever like super cuts making fun of us at the end of those early episodes um yeah. not everything's bad about jim leaving let me tell you no i'm just kidding uh and he's and he is an uh, uh irrepressible light in both of our lives i can I think i can say that with great irony totally he um 
I just, he was an incredibly supportive guy behind the scenes when we started this out and I just sucked and, and, and probably still do suck. But, uh, Jim was incredibly nice, incredibly supportive. And the other thing, when you mentioned those supercuts, which were absolutely hilarious, my, my family loved in particular, uh, despite them being filled with swear words, is that Jim is a great producer and he's also just a great creative force in and of himself. Mm-hmm. As anyone who has seen the Top Gun show he's a part of in L.A. Uh, knows. So him going over to Cousin Sal and, you know, having part of his life to be like funny, creative on the air, on the stage, Jim, mm-hmm. to me, that's awesome. And that that's what I'm looking forward to seeing as much as anything as as letting him also just have that opportunity because he's great and and he is hilarious. All right. Enough sentiment, David. We're back Thursday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, my man. See you, Brian. And bye-bye, Jim.